and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. By now you know my name is Scott Miller, and I am honored to serve each week as your interviewer and host. Today, we have a super special guest. This is an internal author from Franklin Covey. In fact, his books have sold over 10 million copies. He serves as one of the two presidents of the Franklin Covey Company with responsibility for all of our business and client engagements worldwide for our education sector. Sean Covey is a nearly 30-year associate inside the Franklin Covey Company. He's here today to talk about the new release of his father's seminal book for the 30th anniversary of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Sean Covey, welcome to On Leadership. Hey, thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you and love watching your show every week. And so uh, I'm glad to finally be on it. Well, Sean, really we're, we're, we're glad to have you back. You've been on it before as a guest in the studio, but of course, today is your first yeah. time as a virtual guest at an abundance of caution in doing our share. We decided, although we're only a few miles apart, to have you come in today, not just sure. to keep us safe, but also to, to model what we want everyone doing, right? Which is social distancing and, and doing our best to flatten the curve. So I'm honored that you're here today, Sean. You and I have been friends for 25 years. You and I have served on Bob Whitman's executive team for, gosh, 10 plus years. And you are the president of Franklin Covey's Worldwide Education Division, a part of the business that's very near and dear to your heart. You have been responsible for numerous areas of our firm over your you know, 20, nearly 27 years in the firm, you were the leader of our innovations division. You ran all of our retail stores um, internationally. You have a breadth of experience, graduated with your MBA from Harvard and uh, are one of Dr. Covey's nine children. Of course, your father has now um, uh, passed about eight years ago. Your mother also passed about six months ago. And uh, you and your wife, Rebecca, have eight children as well. And I could not be more honored to have you on today, Sean, to talk about the new 30th anniversary of your father's masterpiece, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, I mentioned when I opened that, Sean, you yourself, and uh, I'm going to ask you to check your humility. The books that you have authored or co-authored have sold now over 10 million copies. Most people know you as the author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens which by nearly every measure is the most successful teen leadership book ever written in history. You've written four or five other books, including Seven Habits of Happy Kids, Six Most Important Decisions. You are a co-author on The Leader in Me. You are the lead author of the wildly important and influential business book, The Four Disciplines of Execution. With eight kids, how do you find time to sell 10 million <laughs> copies of your books? <laughs> I don't know. I just got lucky, I guess. No. But, uh, I, I, I've enjoyed uh, writing through the years. I was in college. I was an English major and uh, just kind of fell in love with writing. And uh, ever since, you know, I graduated from college, I just started uh, getting getting into the habit of writing a book every couple of years. And then I typically do it just by getting up early and chipping away every day, a few minutes here or there. And but uh Writing's a lot of fun, and I, I guess I picked up the habit from my father. Well, your humility serves you well, but the fact is you are a very hard worker. You, I have often written about in my own books about your work ethic and how you actually write, and you're actually an extremely disciplined, extremely disciplined writer. When you set your mind to a book project, you set time aside very early in the morning. Talk a bit about what is what have you learned to become your sort of um, your your killer app and how you choose to write. Give, give people some insight into your style. 
Yeah, sure. Well, I think um, I think it's been like, you know, when I decided to do the seven habits of highly effective teenagers, I had young kids at the time, I had a full time job, but I felt really passionate about writing this book. And I, I felt, wow, if I could take these powerful principles, my father, you know, discovered and apply them to the teenage situation, wouldn't that be awesome? And so I, I just thought the only way I'm going to get this done is uh, by just little bits of time. And so I would get up early, usually around 5, 5.30 and write for like an hour every day. And then sometimes on Saturdays, I'd get up really early and write five hours and then occasionally take a holiday and use the whole day to write. And um, But I was able to you know continue to balance my family and my work just by little chip shots every day. And but, you know, it takes a long time to do that when you write a book. It took me about three years to write Seven Habits for Teens. But um, that's, I guess, my, my secret is uh, 30 to 60 minutes frequently uh, over the long haul can, can produce a good book. <laughs> Sean, I've often heard people say that many people love the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teenagers as much, if not more, than your father's seminal work, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Why do you think that book that you authored based on your father's intellectual property and writings has not just resonated so well with teenagers, but with people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So I think that uh, the book resonates well with people, Scott, because it's, number one, it's got cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember reading my father's book um, and thinking, this is such a marvelous book and I'd love to make it come alive for teenagers. So it has, it's just packed full of stories and it's got cartoons, it's fun. Um, we use the same you know, principles of the seven habits, but a very completely different situation with, with teenagers. And so when I wrote it, I wrote it for a 16 to 17 year old teenager, knowing that if I directed it directly to them, that it would also attract their parents. You know? So I, you know, I, I've been honored with the success of the book and hope it continues. Well, Sean, well-deserved. In fact, Thank speaking you. of your dad's book, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is now the 30th anniversary of your father's seminal work. Many, many books your father wrote, but of course, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People stands out as an undeniable bestseller. I did the math last night. Your father's book sells enough every week to maintain status on all of the bestseller list. Your dad's book would still be in the 1500th week as a bestseller after 30 years. Um, wow. um, had the list allowed him to stay on. Of course, they want to have you know, new authors earn their right on. Uh, 40 million copies sold, translated into dozens of languages, I think 50 plus languages. Why do you think your father's book has been, uh, had such longevity to it, selling as much today as it did 25 years ago, quite frankly? Yeah, it's because it's based on timeless principles that are self-evident. And the greater the challenges, the more applicable the principles become. You know, things like habit one, being proactive, taking responsibility, not being a victim. And that applies now, it'll apply 10 years from now. And the worse the circumstance, the more it applies. Uh, you look at some of the other things he teaches around communication, the importance of relationships, the, the character foundation that's just vital to everything else. And um, I think it was, I always look at the seven habits as a breakthrough in the area of social emotional learning or the behavioral sciences. You know, we talk about breakthroughs in different scientific realms. And I think uh, his, his study was so deep and so profound for so many years when he studied effective teams and organizations. I always uh, consider um, 
the seven habits, not just an, another list of seven this or that, but a real breakthrough in the behavioral sciences. And that's why it has so much staying power. It's based upon these timeless paradigms and these principles that are universal. It's just as popular in China as it is here, as it is in Jakarta. And it continues because it was it was written with that frame of reference, right? These are are principles that never go out of style. Sean, you're one of nine children I mentioned. I'm one of four boys. Your older brother, Stephen M. R. Covey, of course, the author of the book, The Speed of Trust. One of your younger brothers, David Covey, has written books as well with his own firm. Uh, you are the only full-time family member um, that's working in the firm as, a, as an officer in the firm. Your younger brother, Josh, of course, works here in the company as well. Tell me about the, the decision-making process that you struggled with when you decided to not just re-release your dad's book, but to actually add content to the book as uh, maybe a co-author and share new insights. What was the struggle, if any, that you faced when you chose to um, uh, kind of tinker with your dad's book? Sure. Scott, was a big struggle, as you know. Uh, the publisher, um, with some help from you, uh, asked me to do this. And the idea was, hey, let's take the 30th anniversary edition. And what if you were to add some insights to it? And my immediate response was, no way. Yeah. I'm not touching this book. And my dad will haunt me <laughs> from his grave if I do so. Because this book is a masterpiece. Like you just said, it's been on the bestseller list for so long. It's been so The impact's been so profound. So I, I said no. And I said no again. And they asked me again. And I said no again. And six months later... I finally got persuaded. And what, what persuaded me is in my role at working at Friend Covey and working with schools, I've just seen the impact that these habits have on people and organizations. So many amazing stories and the, the staying power of the seven habits and how they're being used with kindergartners and high school students and college students and in the military and in equine therapy and you know, in the armed forces, um, I could go on and on, big companies, small companies. I just felt, you know what, maybe I should share what's going on with the seven habits, the impact it's had upon the world and how it's uh, blessed individuals and, and corporations. And then I thought to myself, you know what, I think if my dad were here and I were to ask him the question, do you want me to do this to add some insights? He'd say yes. Hmm. Um, so I didn't change one word of what he said, of course. I kept it all, but the end, at the end of each chapter, I have, you know, a couple thousand words um, with additional insights and some research to, that backs up everything he talked about in the in the book. And so that's that's ultimately what convinced me to do it. Is I thought seven habits are so profound. I should share some of the impactful stories from individuals and from organizations around the world and give some more insight. And then finally, thinking, you know, I think I think Dad would be okay with this. <laughs> Yeah, I'm quite confident your father and mother would be not just okay, but enthusiastically proud of the insights that you've authored. I've been privileged to have an advanced copy. The book releases on May 19th worldwide in English, and I think there's going to be millions of people that choose to pick up the book that they've seen and heard about but haven't read yet and get the benefit of your and your father's wisdom. And I think there'll be an equal number of millions of people that will choose to buy the book again. You've also taped it on audio tape as well to uh, listen to some of your new insights. Sean, you and your wife 
Rebecca, as I mentioned, have eight children. Your, your youngest is named Nathan, and you use Nathan as an example in kind of your first story around adding new insights on paradigms and principles. Amongst three or four stories I'm going to ask you to share today from the new content, will you walk mm -hmm. some of our listeners through a little bit of the story about Nathan? Sure. Yeah, well, this is a, <clears throat> a little story I added to the end of the paradigms and principles. I, one of the insights my father taught me um, and taught all of us is about the power of paradigms, the, the lens through which you see everything determines so much. And he always used to say, you know, if you want to make small, small changes in your life, change your behavior. But if you want to make big, lasting quantum changes, change your paradigm, how you see things. And so I, I just have a story that, you know, I didn't plan on this, but it just illustrates this point so well. I, my son, Nathan, as you mentioned, was really shy growing up, um, dangerously shy, and had social anxiety like you wouldn't believe. And it was really difficult. For example, in kindergarten and first and second grade, we could hardly get him to go to school. Every day was a challenge. And my guess is some of you listening might have the same challenge with some of your kids. But we'd have to just talk him into it and dress him and force him out of the car. And um, one time I remember getting him to school and he would not go in. And I had to tear his hands off finger by finger off of the seat. And I had the principal come out to help me. I handed him to the principal. He threw him over his back. Um, this was in first grade. And Nathan was walking into the school over the principal's back. Uh, the principal was walking. And, he was slugging the principal and I got in my car and I just, I just cried because I thought, oh my gosh, this is so traumatic. What am I, what am I supposed to do with this kid? It was in second grade that I persuaded him to sign up um, for baseball and it took a lot of persuasion. And finally I said, uh, Nathan, you got to do this, give it a try. And so he agreed. We went to practice. He got there, got out of the car. He saw the coach, the other players became so anxious around the situation that he fell down on the ground and he played dead, <laughs> literally. We'd been reading some bear books about bear attacks and what to do. <laughs> and I think he was so frightened, he thought, I'm just gonna play dead. And he laid on the ground, face down, didn't say a word. I went and got the coach. Hey coach, can you come over? And he came over and said, hey Nathan, I'm Coach Smith. Hey, uh, we're so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Not nothing, he just laid there. Ugh. And that went on for one hour. He just laid on the ground. I went back in the car, just sat there, waited, couldn't believe this was happening. When practice ended, he um, stood up, everybody laughed, he stood up, walked into the car as if nothing had happened. And I went home and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, this kid is gonna be a handful. And I was really kind of disappointed in him and this continued for a while. And I remember a year later, I was at a football game and I was with Nathan and some of my other kids and he was being really annoying. And he was, uh, again, in third grade, and he was kicking the seat in front of him. And the person was annoyed and kept looking back and saying, hey, could you please stop your son from, from kicking my seat? And finally, I was so upset with Nathan. I was frustrated with his anxiety and the way he was behaving and the way he wouldn't try anything. And, I, and then the immediate moment of what was going on, and I, I leaned over and I, I squoze his arm really hard, <laughs> as parents sometimes do. And uh, I said, stop it right now in a real 
kind of angry tone. I did that seven times yesterday, just so you know. <laughs> to know. my son. You, know you know how it goes. Right? We all, we all know. Goes. We've all been there. Yeah. And immediately when that happened, Scott, I, I felt my conscience speak to me and I felt ashamed. I felt ashamed because of my anger, because of the way I was judging him in my mind, the paradigm I've, I held of him of being insufficient. It, it was through and through and I felt it. And I, sometimes your conscience speaks to you. And basically I felt, you know what? How dare you treat your son like this? This is a remarkable boy. Let him blossom on his own time. He's gonna be fine. Just step back and watch what this boy can become. And it was a profound experience. I just kind of sat back in my chair and I thought, wow, that was a, that was a really amazing feeling and emotion I just felt right there about my son. And I, I felt ashamed and I felt like I wanted to change. I went home and I told my wife what had happened. And uh, from that day on, I, I really shifted my paradigm. I thought, this is a remarkable boy. He's going to be fine. And my wife and I kind of pulled back and we just let him develop on his own. And I, I was patient with him and I sat down with him and said, you know what, we can take a weakness, your fear of being in front of people and turn it into a strength, Nathan. And so we worked on it together a year later. Okay. Uh, fourth grade. He is called on by the school. That's the leader in me school to speak in front of 200 people at a leadership day. He comes home, says, no way. I'm not doing this dad. They only asked me to speak because you're the seven habits guy. <laughs> and I said, okay, Nathan, for a moment, I thought maybe we should pull him out because maybe he'll play dad when he gets up to speak. <laughs> <laughs> but we let it go forward and I didn't know what was going to happen if he'd prepare or not. But surprisingly at the time he, he started preparing and wrote his own speech and got up on leadership day in front of 200 people and gave a great speech in the middle of the speech. He froze for a moment and sat there and you could see the fear on his face. And then he gathered himself and completed the speech wow. and got a big uh, ovation at the end. And it was a breakthrough moment. And from that, that day on, he started seeking out speaking assignments. Um, his confidence grew. He got into high school. He became the most outgoing, confident kid you'd ever meet. Very compassionate as well, because he had such, so much anxiety growing up yeah. that he had a lot of patience and compassion for other people. But it was an amazing experience because we saw, my wife and I both saw the power of a paradigm that we had a limiting paradigm of Nathan and it was self-fulfilling. Yeah. And once I had that experience and shifted my way of thinking about him and my wife as well, it just it allowed him to blossom on his own timeline, his own schedule. So that's, that's what happened there. Sean, thank you for your vulnerability <clears throat> and transparency. Uh, to all of our listeners and viewers, that same level of tenderness and insight and stories that will literally change your paradigm is what Sean has contributed to this whole new anniversary edition. There's numerous stories just like that, some that are personal to you, some that are professional, some in the academic world, not-for-profit world, in the, in the for-profit world, in the government world. Sean, a couple of the other stories that I want to touch on in our time today is you write in Habit 2, Begin with the End in Mind. You write a very tender story about your father, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, and a transition that he had early in his life around kind of breaking from the family business as it relates to begin with the end in mind. Would you share some of that story as well? Sure, be happy to. <clears throat> well, if you've ever been to Salt Lake City, um, you might know there's a real famous hotel downtown called the Little America. 
And what you might not know is that has some uh, family linkage, believe it or not. Uh, it, it happened many years ago. My great-grandfather, um, Stephen Matt Covey, he lived in Wyoming, and he was a shepherd. And he was, uh, you know, had a lot of sheep, and he was out doing his shepherding thing one time and got caught into a, a snowstorm in the plains of Wyoming in the winter. He thought he was going to die. <clears throat> and uh, during that moment, he, he said a prayer and said, God, if you will save me tonight, I will build a place of refuge right here for weary travelers like me. He made it through the night. Many years later, he kept his promise and he built a hotel uh, right there by the freeway, almost in the exact spot where he was, he was lost that stormy night. In Wyoming. In Wyoming, right. middle of Wyoming. And then he came down and, and built another hotel, the Little America in Salt Lake City, he moved from Wyoming to Salt Lake City, <clears throat> built that hotel. And then his son, my grandfather, ran the hotel for many years. And so my, my dad grew up as kind of the hotel brat, you know, just running around the hotel and watching how it was run. And he was trained to be the next hotel operator. He went to Harvard Business School. <clears throat> he came back and he was expected to run the hotel. But while he was at Harvard, he discovered his love for teaching. And uh, he just got so excited about being a teacher, but he was so afraid to tell his father he didn't want to run the family business. So he got his courage up one day and met with my grandfather and sat down and said, Dad, I've been thinking about this, but I really don't want to run the hotel. I'm so sorry to, to disappoint you. And he said, Grandpa said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be a teacher. I found my passion, my voice is teaching. <clears throat> my grandfather said, you know what? I never liked business that much myself. <laughs> Relieve my father. So the hotel was eventually, uh, my grandfather sold it um, to Earl Holding, who turned it into a dynasty. Yeah. Um, and uh, now there's Little Americas all over, the, all over the country. But my father pursued his passion of, of teaching. He became a teacher. And his uh, vision when he was very young was to unleash human potential. So he took a different route, uh, became a professor for 30 years before he went and started his own company around teaching principles. But it all started with his, his mission. This, um, he always said, you don't invent your mission, you detect it. We all have this mission inherent inside of us of, of ways we can contribute and things we can do that is unique to us. And he felt that. And um, we always say to dad, you know, you should have run the hotel, dad. <laughs> and he, he always says back, would you rather be changing lives or sleeping bodies? <laughs> <laughs> or changing sheets, right? <laughs> exactly. Sean, it's a great story, and I may not have this exactly right, but I, I think there is an inspiring point to be made about your father's kind of transition into being a, a professor and a teacher and writing the book. If I'm not mistaken, your father published The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People when he was 56 years old. He'd worked on it for some time, but I may have the exact age um, wrong, yeah. correct me, but I think it really gives some momentum and excitement for all of us that are in our 40s and 50s and 60s and yeah. 70s and beyond that your father swept the world by storm when he was 56 years old for 30 years. It's kind of never too late to reinvent yourself, to, um, to detect your mission, to uh, change 
your contribution. Am I right that that was his age? Yeah, you're right. That was his age. And I think that's a really good point, Scott, because he, you know, at the age of 56, he published his book at the age of 50. He left, you know, being a comfortable tenured faculty member of a university and, and started a, a new business. He just felt so inspired about bringing these principles to the world. And he said, he used to say, it's not about me. It's about the principles. And I want these ideas to live far beyond my lifespan. So that's where he got the idea of, of starting a company at that age. But absolutely, it's uh, he has a book that he didn't complete that my sister has pick, picked up to complete now called Life in Crescendo about how your greatest work is always ahead of you. And it has numerous stories about people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s that are doing their best work. Sean, for those people that didn't have the privilege of meeting your father, seeing him speak, uh, what was it like growing up as the son of uh, Stephen Covey and your mom, of course, Sandra Covey? Because early in life, you were raised where your dad was just, you know, kind of a middle-class professor teaching in Utah. And then all of a sudden, there was this pivot point where it became this international celebrity and advisor to prime ministers and professors. Talk to our audience around what was that pivot point like for you and for your family and for your mom? Yeah. Well, growing up with it, Scott, we didn't really notice, right? He was just dad and he was a good, good father. We had, I had a good mom too. I was lucky to have good mom and dad. And, and when he was, you know, when I was young, he was a professor. We lived a middle-class life and uh, he started writing these books and started getting famous and, but he was still dad to us. And it was kind of fun in our home. He watching the seven habits be developed because uh, it was, you know, three habits and he used, he used to use the word basic habits, and then he changed it to highly effective. And then there were nine and then 12, and then came back to five and eventually settled in on seven. <laughs> hmm. But he was always trying to teach us these concepts he was working with. And uh, for example, I'd come home from school and I'd say, oh, dad, I'm, my teacher is such a jerk. I'm going to flunk algebra and it's his fault. And he'd quietly take you aside and say, you know what, watch your language, son, because um, you're saying you're going to flunk algebra, it's his fault. That's called being a victim. And if you got a problem with your teacher, don't talk about him. Go talk with him. And I'd say, Dad, you're so weird. Where's Mom? <laughs> <laughs> and we'd go and talk with Mom, and she'd let us blame our problems on, on other people. So it was a good balance. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Sean, uh, habit four, think win-win. You write a great business-relevant story all of us can see ourselves in when you, as an officer of our firm at Franklin Covey, found yourself in a pretty intense, uh, potentially litigious legal situation, and you, you, you kind of walk us through how you use the principle of think win-win to diffuse what was um, you know, a, 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 an upsetting and volatile issue with a vendor. Uh, talk to that story, if you will. Sure. Well, at the time I was running <clears throat> our product development for Franklin Covey and we decided to outsource our intellectual property to this small technology company and things went really well for a while and they were using our intellectual property the way we hoped they would and we were getting some, you know, financial royalties back. So everything was going really well. But a couple of years into this, um, they started using it, using uh, our intellectual property and advertising in ways that were very uncomfortable to us. <clears throat> and so we went and talked about it as a team. And I went and talked with them and I said, you've got to stop 
using and advertising and marketing the way you are because it's hurting our brand. They came back to me to my surprise and said, are you crazy? We're not hurting your brand. In fact, you're violating the agreement and uh, we might come after you for the way you're treating us as your partner. We have a contract and you're not following it. I was so upset and I went to our legal and we talked it through and I talked with uh, our CEO and we, we decided we'd have to go to court about this because it was too important to protect our brand. And we don't like doing that. And we very seldom have ever do it, but we didn't see a, an alternative and legal said, we've, we've got to do this and we'll win in court because we have a strong case. And I remember, you know, deciding to go this route and then remember thinking back about the partner that I met with from the small technology firm who said to me just a couple weeks earlier when I spoke with him, I've always liked your family, Sean, and I'm good friends with your uncle. And I always thought you were good people until now. And that really sunk deep. <clears throat> so I thought about it some more. And then I thought, you know what? Why are we doing this? We can resolve this. There's got to be a solution. Um, and we believe in the idea of think win-win or no deal. Maybe there's a no deal here, but maybe there's a win-win. And so I called up this partner that said, I always thought you were good people. And I said to him, would you mind meeting with me to see if we can resolve this? Because if we go to court, it's going to cost us hundreds of thousands, us and you. And you know that. And let's meet without lawyers. And he was reluctant, but finally he agreed. Um, our lawyer, our legal team said, don't meet with them because it might compromise our position if we go to court. And I thought, well, we, I think we better give it a try. So we met together, me and this gentleman. <clears throat> and I, I sat down and I said, help me to understand how you see the situation. Let's try to resolve this. If we can, that's fine. We'll go to court. He goes, oh, okay, we'll give it a try. So he was sitting down and I got up on the whiteboard and I said, help me understand how you see this. He said, oh, well, I, this is how I see it. And this and this, I wrote down about 15 items. And then I said, is there anything else? And he said, yes, this and this. And then I just walked through and I just repeated back everything he'd said um, so that he knew I understood. And I, I asked him, do you feel like I understand you? And he said, yes, I do. And it changed me because for the first time I could see his point of view clearly. Mm. And he was right. We were violating parts of the agreement. And uh, I was influenced by this. And then I said to him, would you mind if I shared with you the same way you shared with me about how we see the situation? And he said, yes. And he was open to my influence because I was open to his. And so I walked through on the whiteboard all the things that we were, we were sensing and seeing. And I believe he was deeply influenced and said, I understand. And uh, the, the spirit in the room changed. It was suddenly mutual understanding, mutual benefit. Uh, we suddenly got into brainstorming about ways to resolve this. And in 30 minutes, we came up with a solution um, around us getting back our IP over a long period of time. It gives them time to, to adjust at a fair price. We both felt really good about it. <clears throat> it was a remarkable feeling because we started advocating for each other's position. And we left the meeting, shook hands, we resolved this. The whole thing took about an hour and 15 minutes. And he called me up a week later and said, hey, do you want to go to lunch? <laughs> and I said, sure. And during lunch at one point, he goes, I always knew your family were good people. <laughs> but I was so glad that I took that approach. Win-win uh, or no deal is, is such a good, a good approach. And my experience is that 90% of the time it works, not all the time, but most of the time. 
if you're willing to be open and to listen and to be influenced by other people. So that was a really neat thing to, to see our, our content in practice, Scott. It's a phenomenal insight because not to be Pollyannish, not every legal issue can be resolved like you and that colleague did in 90 minutes. But it kind of gives all of us pause, does it not, to sit back and say, is there another way? Does it have to be lose-lose? Does it have to be no deal? Does it have to be lose-win? And I think you've given all of us a little bit of permission, not just in the book, but in the conversation, to rethink any areas of our life where there is conflict, interpersonally, professionally, perhaps even potentially legally, to check your ego, check your paradigm, meet the person sort of halfway, maybe even meet them 51%. You might have to walk a little bit further across the bridge sometime and check your own humility because you've proven that in many cases, even some of the most you know, high stakes conversations, right? That it yeah. actually can, um, if two people are, if one person is willing to think win-win. Your father was often That's common right. to say it takes one person, right? Not two. Yeah. yeah, you're exactly right. It only takes one to start it. And typically the second person will jump in. Yeah. And like you said, you got to, anytime there's a conflict of some kind, you've got to believe that there are, there are third alternatives. We, we think so much off, so often we think about dichotomies. It's this or that, black or white, it's my way or your way. Most of the time there are third alternative solutions, meaning it's better than what I have in mind and what you have in mind right now. We can communicate well, we can discover it, but typically we let our egos get in the way and pride and we don't communicate effectively. And so we, we give up and say, no, it's this way or that way. But so true. You can take any situation you have right now at work, any conflict with the yeah. spouse, with a colleague, and there's always a third alternative, better approach than what you're thinking about right now. Sean, when the book launched by your father and his colleagues early on, they began to simultaneously develop and launch a you know, personal training program, right? That was uh, right. audio-based and then video-based and became a four or five day workshop up at the Sundance Resort and then major companies like P&G and Delta and others around the world began to adopt it. And eventually it became, by most every measure, the world's most widely adopted personal effectiveness, even leadership development offering in, yeah. in organizations, whether it be state and local counties or religious organizations or school districts, universities, Fortune 50, Fortune 5000s. And today, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People work session is available in live stand-up training. It's, for, it's available in blended learning through webinar. We have podcasts around it. We have self-paced modules. I mean, any way an organization wants to instill these seven habits into their workforce, they can consume it and deliver it that way, especially in the, in the quarantine days right now where people aren't gathering and learning, right? Companies are continuing to implement the seven habits through a variety of very innovative tech-savvy ways. To that point, why do you think the Seven Habits work session has remained for 30 years the world's most adopted personal effectiveness program inside of organizations? Well, I think because it's uh, so personal, first of all, right? It really, it, it teaches how to be effective with other people and with teams and organizations, but it starts with you. It's an inside-out approach. And Stephen used to say, one of the insights I share in the book is, he used to say all the time, sequence matters so much. When he first wrote the book, um, he finished it and everybody was thrilled and was getting ready to be published. And he said, I have to rewrite it, everybody. And everybody was so disappointed. We said, why? And he said, because I, I get the sequence. 
at a higher level than I did when I first wrote it. And I've got to rewrite it because private victories precede public victories. Victory over self and getting your own act together is so foundational to being effective with other people. And it wasn't strong enough in the book, so I have to rewrite it. But <clears throat> I think it's it's powerful because, Scott, it, it starts with you. It starts with um, the idea of you're responsible for your life. You're not a victim. And then it's what do you want to create with your life? What is your blueprint? Begin with the end in mind. And then having the integrity to make sure that first things come first, things that matter most, get the proper time and attention they need. <clears throat> and then it works into being effective with other people, thinking win-win, um, th seeking first to understand, being a good listener, uh, synergizing, finding common ground, and then finally sharpening the saw. So it's, I think it's so powerful because it works from the inside out. It helps people become more effective. The only way they can become more effective, which is personal change. And it's really silly for us to think that we can change a team or an organization if we're personally not willing to make a change ourselves. We work a lot with schools and uh, the, uh, the faculties and staffs of these uh, elementary schools, they always say to us, oh my goodness, we thought that this the seven habits was for the kids, for us to teach the kids. This is for us. <laughs> and it, it changes us first. And then we model the behavior and then the kids want to do it as well. So that's why I think it has a staying power based on these principles, these paradigms, new ways of seeing things. And then it's an inside out approach, which, um, you know, in the end, we're all human beings first. And we've got to, that's, that's the only way we're going to change anything is to change ourselves first. Sean, thank you for sharing that. The book was a masterpiece. The book is a even better masterpiece now after your contribution. I highly encourage all of our listeners and viewers to uh, pick it back up, reread it. It's available for release now around the world in English, beginning on May 19th, uh, the day of this release. Sean, I'd like to end and take the conversation a little bit personal, if you will. You know, you're, you're renowned for writing books called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens and The Seven Habits of Happy Kids. And you've written a book about teenagers around the six most important decisions. I'm going to guess most people that are watching and listening think, well, of course, Sean Covey's life is perfect and highly effective and everybody is happy. And the fact of the matter is, is you've been through a lot of struggle in your life, right? You are in your early 50s and you've now lost both of your parents, which a lot of people can relate to, and that's a very difficult time. It's, it's, it's um, a very sensitive and tender topic, but I think most of our listeners know that uh, you and your wife, Rebecca, um, lost um, one of your children, Rachel, several years ago to the, um, to the effects of depression and other issues that your beautiful daughter faced, and that you too have been um, through some very difficult times. Um, um, after the passing of your daughter, Rachel, you and your wife have dedicated in your family through generous foundation funding and contribution, you've dedicated and developed a foundation that is helping people um, that are facing very diff difficult and similar circumstances. Would you end our conversation and talk a little bit about your daughter and uh, the impact that her legacy continues to have on um, young ladies um, that, that have a chance to experience this foundation? Sure. Yeah, so uh, my daughter, Rachel, was uh, 21 years old when she passed away. And it was uh, traumatic for our family, as you can imagine. Uh, she was amazing life of the party girl and she loved horses. My wife and I hated animals, <laughs> but learned to love them because of our kids. And uh, we let her get a horse and she would, 
you know, she, that was her voice is riding horses and going on 25, 50 mile endurance races. And so when we lost her, it was really, really difficult, but we, we got the idea. I remember my, a good friend of mine came to me and he said he had lost his son a few years before. And he said, here's my experience, Sean, you can let this hurt your family. You can let it define you or you can let it strengthen you. It's kind of a choice. So my wife and I tried our very best to try to help have this setback um, help us and strengthen our family. And so one of the things we did is we thought, let's let's channel our grief into something that can help others. And so uh, during the after the couple of weeks that we lost Rachel, I had several of her friends came to me and said, I want you to know your daughter changed my life. And one girl in particular, I said, well, tell me what happened. What do you mean she changed your life? Well, I was really messed up and making bad decisions and going the wrong way. And Rachel took me, started get, taking me on horseback rides um, in the mountains because she had a, a, we had two horses. And it just being in the mountains and being in nature just changed me completely. And this happened again and again. People would come up and say, Rachel and horses changed me. And so we got this idea of starting a foundation. We call it Bridal Up Hope. <laughs> and the idea is we help young women overcome anxiety, depression, abuse, and trauma uh, through equestrian training. We combine it with the seven habits, of course. <laughs> and it's been really impactful. So we take young girls that might have been through a traumatic experience of some kind um, or are in deep depression or been in lockdown and or this or that. Um, so many girls that are struggling right now, uh, depression and anxiety is an epidemic right now with young teenage girls. And so we take them and we put them through a 14-week program they come for a few hours a week, we put them through private horseback riding lessons. We teach them the habits and we teach them the habits of resilience, the seven habits and teach them how to be proactive, not be victims and to think win-win. And we do it in a very non-academic way while they're riding the horse. We teach them lessons like you just, you just took charge of that horse. What does that feel like? For the first time, the horse knows you're in charge. That's empowering, isn't it? Yes, it is. You can do the same thing with your life. People can feel it when you take charge of your life. And so that's kind of the way we incorporate the seven habits, but it's been very uh, impactful. We've had hundreds of girls uh, go through the program. We've got it in seven locations now around the world in Europe and in the West Indies, and we're expanding it to hopefully thousands of locations eventually. It's all designed to help young women, um, you know, incre uh, increase in hope and confidence and resilience through effective habits and through equestrian training. That's been a big uh, thing for our family. We've all been involved. We raise money on the side. <laughs> we help in one way or another. We started an online store to help support and fund it. And it's been a way that we've channeled back our grief into, into service. Um, and it's been really, really good. And it's brought us together as a family. And so I, I think, it, you know, every family goes through ups and downs. And if you haven't had a major challenge in your life, at some point you will. And my experience has been that these, these principles are so important and seven habits can really, they helped our family and they can, they can help you as well. <clears throat> and, and so I just, uh, you know, I, I have a strong belief in these, in these principles, they really do work. And um, I think that they, they can make a big difference personally in, in your own family. We developed a family mission statement um, after this, this setback for us that we uh, we have on our living room wall. 
and it's been a really powerful thing for us. Sean, thank you for your uh, transparency and your tenderness there to share the story uh, of your daughter, Rachel. And if more of our listeners or viewers want to learn about Bridal Up Hope, just Google it and you can find ways to get involved in any number of areas um, with this fine organization. Sean Covey, best-selling author, president of Franklin Covey's Education Division Worldwide and a good friend of mine. Thank you for your time today. The new book is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the 30th anniversary. We hope that all of our listeners will pick up a new copy and perhaps even consider implementing the principles back into your organization. You can visit franklincovey.com to learn more about uh, being a member of our All Access Pass and how The Seven Habits can literally transform your leadership style, and that culture inside of your organization. Sean, thank you for your time today. Scott, so good being with you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Appreciate it. And we'll see you back here next week for another interview. If you're not subscribing, you know now that On Leadership is now the world's (laughs) fastest growing and largest weekly leadership podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. We'd invite you to join franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. Subscribe to it. It comes out every week on Tuesday mornings via email. We also push it to all your favorite podcast platforms, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. You look for it. You'll find it. Rate it. Rank it. Review it. Subscribe your friends and family as well. We'd love to have you join us, and we'll see you next year for another interview on leadership.